Yesterday was a very interesting day for me as I had kind of already was well on my way in preparation for this morning's service. And uh, literally everything that I've been sharing for the last two and a half years, everything on my iPad, the one folder, only one folder. Now, for those of you who are iCloud people, I've got many folders, but one folder specifically, all my Bible studies vanished Two and a half years worth of stuff just vanished in the thin air, gone. And then five hours later, it came back. Do you know what that did to me? It hurt my feelings. My feelings were very hurt. I only had two left. That killed both of them. But thank God they came back. It was a little glitch, I guess. But it was, uh, it was not a very easy day for me yesterday because even this morning message was gone. And so I'm like, this is not good. This is not good. But I know God would be faithful no matter what. Um, But anyway, a very interesting day yesterday. But it makes, uh, it kind of makes sense to me sometimes when, when when you're teaching a book like the Gospel of John, because of the nature of this gospel, it wouldn't surprise me, and again, I don't know whether that was the Lord or whether it was the devil or both. Maybe God certainly allowed it to happen, but I know, that, I know this for sure. It doesn't matter to me how or why that happened, but I can tell you this, that the devil does not want you to read this book. And we're going to talk about why in, in a little more detail before we actually get into the first few verses today. Because it speaks of the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is very important. In fact, it is the very thing that our faith is dependent upon. It's what what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. If If he was not God in the flesh, then we are wasting our time here. We might as well fulfill the lusts of the flesh and do whatever it is that we want to do because we would be wasting our time if he was not who he said he was and if he didn't do what he said he was going to do. Does that make sense? And so this one gospel, it doesn't mean that the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it doesn't mean that they didn't talk about the deity of Christ, for certainly they did, but this one is specific. It's, it's like John says, you know, I've, I've, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have their, their perspective, but my perspective, I want to make sure that everyone knows that it's not just some prophet, that Jesus is not just some good man, that he was almighty God in the flesh. And folks, do you understand that that's what separates Christianity from all of the other world religions of the world? All other world religions, that separates them, that cuts them all apart, and it leaves Christ at the center, and everybody else goes home. Because no one can claim, has, can rightly claim to be God, and no one can claim that, they, that their death paid for the price of my sin, paid the price for my sin. And not only that, but he secured for us everlasting life. And the devil... He hates that message. That is the message that is attacked more than anything, is the deity of Jesus Christ. And therefore, this gospel is very important to us. Extremely important. Now, before we get into it, there's some things we've got to talk about. We know that the author is John. The author is John the Apostle. And there have been critics over the years that have always sought to malign the, the books of the Bible, 
For some reason, the real important, I mean, they're all important, don't get me wrong, but there are some that really stand out, like John and Daniel and and Genesis and Revelation. For some reason, liberal scholars are always trying to attack that central truth of those books because they contain some of the most important truths of the Bible and who Jesus is and where we're going in our future. And it's not unlike the devil. He, He attacks what's most important. The things that aren't important, he doesn't bother with. But he's going to attack this book, and he attacked the deity of Christ, and he's still doing it today. But even a great many of the early church fathers, people like Polycarp, who was a, a, an early church father, who was also a disciple of John the Apostle. He was a disciple of John. He even went on record to say that, um, that John wrote this gospel during his time at Ephesus. So I think he has a pretty good understanding of who wrote this book. And many of the other early church fathers agreed with that as well. It was a very well-known fact. It's, it seems like a no-brainer to us because we've always heard it. But back at that time, uh, the authorship of this book is important because that gives the, an authority to the message. And although John's name, you'll, you won't find it in the Gospel of John, he's often referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved or the other disciple. As you go through the gospel, you're going to notice that he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. He never mentions himself by name, and I think that's just the humility of John. And we know that John had an older brother, James, They both were the sons of Zebedee, a fisherman, and both these brothers were in the fishing business with their father. And the Lord called both of them into the ministry. Even the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, talks of John as being a pillar of the church. A pillar of the church. And when we look at the Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than Jesus Christ, who is the central figure of the Gospels? Any guesses? Peter. <laughs> of all the disciples, of all the apostles, the one that's spoken of most is Peter. Not John so much. John was there and he, his name is mentioned, but for some reason, the overall, um, whenever the disciples are mentioned, there's something about Peter. And, and I love Peter because I can relate to Peter, especially when I was younger, because when I was younger, I was more impetuous. I was more impatient. I was more uh, spontaneous. And as I get older, I, I feel like I'm becoming a little bit more like John. John was a thinker. He, was a, he wasn't swift to talk like Peter was. Peter would say whatever was on his mind. It was like the first instance of Tourette's syndrome. He would just say whatever, he, whatever came to his mind. And then he would often have this, it's where the hoof and mouth disease started. He'd always have to get his foot in his mouth because he would speak quickly and not really thinking about what he was saying. But John was of a different character. John was quiet. He was a mystic. He was a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) Peter was a brawler. At one point, I think Peter was that kind of a temperament, very volatile, but John was not that way. But in the Gospels, we see uh, John, in in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus calling Simon Peter. We see him calling Andrew and James and John. In Matthew 17, we see Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, we see James and John 
um, asking their mother to ask Jesus about whether they could sit on either side of the Lord in his kingdom. Remember that? Also, in John 13, we also see John in that upper room at the Last Supper, leaning on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Remember that? And it was also John who was the one who Jesus entrusted his own mother as Jesus hung on the cross. Who was it that Jesus said, Behold your son? He looked at John and he says, and, or looked at his mother and he says, Behold your son. And he looked at John and he says, Behold your mother. In other words, John, I'm going to leave now. I want you to take care of my mother. And he did. John, it tells us in in history that John took her to Ephesus and was with him. And he took care of Jesus' mother. What a great privilege that was. Can you imagine? His mother. He was the eldest son. He was passing on. And he's like, I can entrust my mother to this one. This John. And I love comically in John chapter 20, we read of when Peter and John are running to the tomb, John is so humble in saying that he outran Peter to the tomb. He outruns him to the tomb. In John chapter 21, and we we also see Peter inquiring about John's future and Jesus rebuking him for it and saying, "What what what does he have to do with it? You follow me. In other words, don't worry about what I'm going to do in his life, my plan for his life. Peter, you follow me. That's what he told him. And that's good advice for us. We tend to size each other up, don't we? And we compare ourselves to one another. It's often a dangerous thing to compare yourself to another Christian because they are on, they're in a different place. They're seasons of life. They're seasons within our lives. And we have to be gracious and loving and compassionate with each other as we go through these seasons, because it looks very different. The date of this book is kind of hard to determine. Some believe that it was written before the the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Others give it a later date, somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. Don't really know for sure, but it really doesn't matter. Because the content, the, the message of this is the most important part. And the main theme of it, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 20. I want you to see this. In John chapter 20, notice in verse 30. <clears throat> excuse me. John chapter 20, verse 30. What does it say? It says, and truly Jesus did many other signs or miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and notice, and that believing you might have life through his name. You might have life in his name. That is the whole crux of this gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And that is why the devil hates this book. He hates it, and he hates that you're listening to it. And he hates that you read it. But I would encourage you to read it. Notice, in just a few verses prior to that, in verse 26, notice what it says. Stay right there. 
In verse 26, it says, after eight days, now Jesus records his resurrection. It says, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas, um, we know he wasn't there on the day of the resurrection. But now eight days later, he's there in the upper room with the disciples. After eight days, Thomas with them, it says, Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst. And he said, peace be to you. And of course, they're freaking out because the doors were closed. And all of a sudden, he just appears in his new resurrected body, which evidently can trans, can go through walls. He can appear and disappear at will. He says, peace be to you. And then he said to Thomas, because Thomas was the one that wasn't there. And Jesus knew that. And he goes up to Thomas and he says, reach your finger here and look at my hands. So Jesus holds up his hands and he says, put your finger in my nail prints where the nails were. Go ahead and put your finger in there, Thomas. And reach your hand here and put it into my side where they pierced me with the sword. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And what did Thomas say? And here again is the whole meaning, the whole reason for this gospel. What did Thomas say? He answered and says, my Lord and my God. And that was why he acknowledged him as Lord and God in the flesh. And again, that is, those are fighting words in hell. Those are fighting words in the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is God in the flesh. It's very evangelical. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're known as synoptic Gospels because they cover similar material from different vantage points. But this one is very specific. In the other Gospel accounts, we read of the genealogy In Matthew and Luke specifically, we read about the genealogy. We read about the birth of Christ. We read about the baptism, the temptation, the casting of demons, casting out of demons, the parables, the transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, his agony in Gethsemane, his crucifixion, and certainly the ascension. But this one is very specific. And there are, and and John's gospel doesn't touch on those at all. But rather... He focuses on seven miracles, seven signs, if you will, changing water into wine at Cana, healing an official son's uh, an official son in Capernaum, healing an invalid at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, feeding the five thousand near the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, healing a blind man in Jerusalem, and certainly raising Lazarus from the dead, and all of these things only God can do. And that's why those were chosen, very specific things to portray Jesus, that he is almighty God in the flesh. And also, these are statements that we know very well. In the Gospel of John, we see the seven I am statements, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. All of these things point to his deity in many facets, like a diamond with many facets as it's held up to the light. The beauty of Jesus Christ and all of these things. And why, is these I, why are these I am statements so significant? The Jews certainly knew because they remembered Exodus chapter 3. Remember, Moses said to God, as he was traveling on the outside, uh, in the, taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, on the backside of the desert, he saw the fiery flaming burning bush that wasn't consumed. And Moses said to God, said to the, fire, the, the flaming bush, 
as he's speaking with God, he says, Indeed, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I came to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am whatever you need me to be. I am all of that and much more. What is your need? See, that's, that's what God says to you. What is your need today? Because he can fulfill that need, whatever it is. No need is too small or too great. Do you believe that? Haven't you experienced that in your own life, in your own experience with the Lord? It doesn't matter. He knows everything about you. He lived in the flesh for 33 years on this earth. He knows exactly what it's all about. He endured all temptations that you and I will ever endure, and yet he was without sin. Not so much us. That's why we need him. The very blood of God taking my place. So Jesus was affirming his deity by saying, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And why is Jesus' deity so important? Because again, if he wasn't who he said he was, then we are wasting our time. Only God can forgive sins. Only God could take the place and fulfill his own righteous standard for the sin of man. Only he could do it. Nobody else could do it. That is why it's so important. Sin and death began in the garden. And what does it tell us in Romans 5 verse 12? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned, notice, from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Only God can forgive sins. And what is God's decree concerning this sin? It is death. Isn't that a great topic? You thought when we got out of Revelation, we wouldn't talk about it anymore, right? In Ezekiel, the, in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, it says, God says, The soul that sins, that continues to sin, shall surely die. In Romans 6.23, what does it tell us? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A wage is something you earn, and when I sin, I earn death. But, what does it say? The gift of God. A gift is not something that you earn. A gift is something that's freely given. And what is that gift? Eternal life through Jesus Christ. How important is it that Jesus died for our sin. How important is it that he is deity, that he is almighty God in the flesh? I would say it, it's everything. See, we could not pay the price for our sin. Had it not been for God's grace, mercy, and compassion, we would have been eternally separated from God in the lake of fire forever. So I think this is important. In Hebrews 9, it says, uh, 22, it says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There has to be a substitute 
Because God says the soul that sins shall surely die. That's why even in the Old Testament, even the animal sacrifices, they were insufficient. They covered for a time, but it wasn't permanent. It was something they had to do over and over and over again. In Hebrews chapter 10, what does it say? For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those, these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So even in the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, it was temporary. It wasn't something that was permanent. Until Christ came and offered himself once and for all. In Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Remember that word tabernacle, because next week we'll get into, and the word became flesh and was tabernacled among us. But notice what it says. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, notice this, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Wow. There it is. Is his deity necessary? Is it important? Yes, it is, because of the sin issue. Only God can forgive sins. And it wasn't until Jesus that he did it. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. There's no more sins that have to be atoned for. You just have to look to him Because he's the perfect spotless lamb of God. His blood on the cross was all that was needed. It doesn't need to happen over and over again like the Old Testament. Once, once and for all. And God in his grace gave us this remedy, this wonderful remedy. His son Jesus. What does it tell us in the verse that we all know and have memorized? For God so loved the world that he, God the Father, he gave as a gift his son He gave Jesus, his son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish eternally, but have everlasting life. So what is it all about? It's about believing in the son of God, Jesus Christ. I think the devil hates that. He doesn't want you to know who Jesus is. He's very content with the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's very content with the Mormons. He's very content with Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism because they don't claim that their founder is God in the flesh and died for the sin of man. They don't like to talk about sin. And their, their understanding of who Jesus is is so warped. It's not right. It's not biblical. It's not who Jesus said he was. I think that's a problem, don't you? Somebody says that Jesus is the kind of person who can just kind of feel it, you know, just kind of do what feels good. And believe it or not, there are many people today that serve that kind of Jesus. Oh, Jesus loves me. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay to smoke that pot. It's okay to continue hanging out at the bars and sleeping around. It's okay. It's okay that I steal from work. God will forgive me. After all, he knows I have needs. 
And he's not that bad. He's a God of love, isn't he? Yes, he is. He is a God of love. But he's a God of holiness, and he demands that of you. And we can't, in and of ourselves, do that. But in Christ, we have been made righteous through his blood. God sees you as righteous because of his blood covering you. What a great thing. That's why this is so important. The deity of Christ. And again, if Jesus was not who he said he was, if he wasn't God incarnate and he didn't die for our sins and we are hopeless, we are condemned. At the very best, we will just die and cease to exist. Sort of like when you go under anesthesia for a surgery. You don't even remember what happened. And, you know, at the, at the, at the best, that would be what it is if it wasn't for Christ. If, if this is, all this is not true, then, then we're just going to die and then we just cease to exist. Or the worst case scenario is that we don't have a savior, nobody can save us, and then we die and we spend eternal, <laughs> eternity in the lake of fire. But that's not what the Bible says. He is the savior of the world. He came to save, to seek, and to save the lost. And I, I hope that he's got all of you. Does he have you? Do you know that you've been ha- I was going to say, do you know that you've been having, having, do you know that you've been obtained? <laughs> do you know that God has you? And if you don't know, go to your prayer closet today and say, God, I want to make sure that you have got me. I don't want to play Russian roulette here. I want to know today that I am one of yours because the Bible says that you can know that. And you keep praying. If you're, if you're doubtful, if you're unsure of whether you belong to him or not, do not cease every day to pray until he confirms it to your heart. Because believe me, you don't have to beg You don't have to beg, and it's not based on your performance. It's based on your belief of what he, who he is, and what he did for you. That's all you got to do. Confess your sin and receive Christ. Receive him. But he died once. Romans six ten. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. In Hebrews 7.26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, notice, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. No more need to do all those cutting of the lambs and sacrificing the lambs and the goats. One sacrifice is all that's required, and it's already happened, folks. We look back on that event at Calvary, the greatest worship service in the history of the universe, on that cross, and yet he stood there alone with only a few people looking on, and all of his disciples except for John scattered. Alone he paid the price on that cross. Even his own father abandoned him on the cross, He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. He became sin for us. And this is the theme of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is God. And what a mystery, the incarnation, isn't it? A verse that we know very well, especially around Christmas time, is Isaiah 9, verse 6. What is it? Think about this. I want you to think about this verse, and I'm going to highlight a couple spots as we go. For unto us a child is born, 
Okay, so there's a, there's a child. Unto us a son is given. Okay, a son. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful. Okay, so this child, the son who is given, and Isaiah 7.14, it says, The virgin shall conceive, the virgin, Mary, she shall conceive and bear a son. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice, Mighty God. This son is Mighty God, Almighty God in the flesh. That's equating God the Father with the Son. That means they are one. We've heard of the Trinity. Try explaining that to somebody, the Trinity. You're going to have a hard time. But that's what the Bible says. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three are one. The Son. He's mighty God. Notice, everlasting Father. Are you kidding me? He's equal with, he's calling this son, this this child, 700 years before he was even incarnate through the Virgin Mary, he was called Almighty God, Everlasting Father. Oh my goodness, that means he's equal with God. And I'll say one word to that. Duh. Yes. He is. It's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward. And guess what? And forever. All the kings on this earth have died. But this king lives forever. He lives now. He's ever, he ever lives to make intercession for us. When he rose again on the third day, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. He's been there preparing a place for us, interceding for you and I on our behalf, saying, I will come for you again, and I will prepare a place. And that's what he's doing. He's interceding. He's building. He's preparing a place for you and I that where he is, we might also be. Are you looking forward to that? We talked about that in Revelation. In the rapture of the church, we're going to be taken and we're going to meet him in the air. We will be with him forevermore. And then Paul said, comfort one another with these words. That's a pretty good comfort, I would say. I mean, think of the alternative. He's going to prepare a place for you and then he's going to come and he's going to lock you up. Because you've been naughty. He's going to throw you in the deepest, darkest pit. Because you've been nasty. <laughs> Is that what it says? No, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And none of the founders of any of the world religions can rightly claim to be God or even have the claim to die for the sins of the world. And it seems that this gospel has anticipated heresies and attacks on the word of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They believe that in these first verse where it says, in the beginning was the word, they believe that the word is synonymous with Michael the archangel. They don't believe that Jesus is the word of God. He's just a good man. That he was indeed Michael the archangel. Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower Society in Brooklyn, New York, what did he say? He says, the man Jesus is dead. He's forever dead. End quote. That's what they believe. But yet they come to your door, and they'll, show, they'll open up a Bible, and they'll, they'll even allow you to use your Bible sometimes, but usually they're trying to you know, sell your, their stuff to you. Don't buy it. The Bible says, don't even let them in your house. Don't give them Godspeed. <laughs> Just say, 
No, thank you. Or if you want to talk with them, share the gospel with them. I've done that a couple times. Believe me, they, they don't want to hear it. But you know what? Why not try? But don't talk about anything but Jesus and him being God. That'll drive them crazy. Demons screaming <laughs> when you talk about Jesus being God, because that's, that's what it's all about, folks. That's why we're here. If he wasn't God, then we're wasting our time. The Mormon church believed that Jesus was the half-brother of Lucifer and thus equal with Satan. But yet the Bible says that Satan was a created being. In Ezekiel 28, you can read it. He's a created being. He's not equal with God. He's not equal with Jesus. Brigham Young said this, Jesus Christ was a polygamist. Kind of justifies their stance, doesn't it? Jesus Christ was a polygamist. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, were his plural wives, and Mary Magdalene was another. Also, the bridal feast of Cana of Galilee, which we'll look at in chapter 2, he, they, he claims where Jesus turned the water into wine was the occasion of one of his marriages. Can you believe this nonsense? Jesus was a polygamist. Really? Believe me, if Jesus can withstand 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil himself, there's no woman on the planet who could tempt him. No woman. See, you and I have never been tempted by the devil, probably. We've been tempted by demons, but can you imagine the devil himself coming and tempting you? Believe me, you're going to need everything. You're going to need the Son of God on your side, and you better drop to your knees and start calling on Jesus if the devil comes after you. He's no match for Jesus, but apart from Christ, we are helpless if he comes after us. Helpless. But God. But God, right? Christian scientist, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, she said this, God is indivisible. A portion of God cannot enter man. Neither could God's fullness be reflected by a single man. She clearly did not understand the mystery of the incarnation, and she certainly didn't understand Colossians 2, verse 9. It says, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in bodily form. All the fullness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the mystery of the incarnation. God who dwells outside of time, who the heavens can't even contain him, yet he could be in a frame of a human body. Is God able to do that? I think he is. If he was able in the beginning to say, let there be light, and there was light, when there was nothing, and he says, let there be light, and there was light. And he looked in the oceans, and he says, let there be life. And he knew exactly the order of it all and how everything would work together. Everything would be in its right order. The food chain was already well established. Already in his mind, he just says, let it happen. And all these genius and wonderful creatures came to be. And then he created man, you and I, to capstone his creation, to take care of it, to have authority over it. So he is God, and yet the world religions deny that. They say that he is not God in the flesh. In 1 John chapter 2, 22, it says, Who is a liar, John says, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, and the Messiah is equivalent to God Almighty in the flesh. The Jews knew that. 
The Messiah was equal with God. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Believe me, many of the world religions are denying that Jesus is the Christ. And yet that's what the Bible says. That's what we have to uphold. That's what we have to preach. That's what we have to teach. And hopefully we're living that message. I want to live that message. I want my life to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. His purity, his holiness. And I'd love to do that and still have a sense of humor. A sanctified sense of humor. And the Lord has been sanctifying my sense of humor over the last several years. And especially in the last two and a half. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets, and Mary Baker Eddy, and Charles Russell, and uh, Brigham Young, and all of these are false prophets. They are all false prophets. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Notice, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? That cuts it right down. If they believe that he's God in the flesh, it's of God. If they don't believe it, they're not. It's that simple. So when you talk to people, ask them who Jesus is. And if they say, well, he's a good guy. He's a, he's a wonderful prophet. Not good enough. It's not good enough. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist. Everything that you hear that says Jesus is not who he says he is, is, of, is the spirit of Antichrist. I think there's a lot of that happening, don't you? Even in some Christian churches, some Protestant churches, they don't talk about the, the Bible anymore. They talk about feel-good messages, make you feel good inside so that you come back. And while you're in getting a 30-second or, a, or a, I'm sorry, a 30-minute sermonette after the worship team has spent an hour and a half with all the lights and the guitars and everything, while you're doing that, your kids are, being, are playing video games and being entertained. This gospel confronts, even of John's day, it confronts Gnosticism, it confronts docetism, asceticism, which all of these things are just false teachings of John's day that, among other things, claim that Jesus was just a phantom, that he wasn't really God in the flesh. It also is an affront to all the man-made religion and secular liberal thinking. What does 1 Corinthians 1 say, verse 18? For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This gospel abolishes all of that. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are what? They are spiritually discerned. There have been a few critics who have examined the Bible and, and said, the book of Isaiah, there appears to be at least two different authors of the book of Isaiah. 
Because the message in the first 40 chapters is quite a bit different than the last 26. And again, the Lord, his word, preempting this. It's called the Deutero-Isaiah theory, meaning two Isaiahs. Some people think there's three or four. Oh, let's just pick five. Why not? But what does the Bible say? You can believe the higher critics, or you can believe what the Word of God says. In John chapter 12, it says in verse 37, But although he had done so many signs and miracles before them, they did not believe him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, which is the second half of what people thought, that this other Isaiah that it might be fulfilled which a prophet spake. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah, Isaiah said again, and here he quotes from the ninth chapter, or the sixth chapter. So the Spirit of God says there's one Isaiah. And yet the fancy pants in the ivory towers, they say there's two. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to believe the starch collars, or are you going to believe Jesus? Are you going to believe the word of God? I'm putting my trust in the word of God. One Isaiah. And yet God, in this gospel, anticipated this kind of stuff. And I imagine that as time goes on, we're going to uncover all kinds of things that God had preempted in this gospel to confound those untruths, those things that malign who Jesus really is. Let's look at a couple of verses. Maybe we'll get through the first two or three. Let's look at the first. Um, let me just read the first five. Finally, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, does that kind of have your ears tingle a little bit? Whoever this Word is, is now a he. Do you read the Bible like that? Think about it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hmm. This Word was with God. He was with God. And He was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without nothing... Without him, nothing was made that was made. Notice, in him, this word was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, as you look at that, and you look at the pronouns, you put two and two together, you understand that whoever this word is, it's a male. And further down in verse 14, we'll get to this next week, but look at verse 14, what does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, clothed in human flesh, when before he was not clothed with human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. When did that happen? On that day in Bethlehem, when Mary and Joseph were there, and there was no room for them in the inn, and out in the stable, out in a feeding trough, is where the Son of God was born in a stone-feeding trough with hay. That's where the Savior of the world was born. But notice, in the beginning, in the beginning, what beginning? 
In the beginning was the word. What beginning? God didn't have a beginning. So what beginning could this be? Well, it ought to bring to mind another chapter or another book in the Bible that started with the very same phrase. In the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In the beginning, in what beginning? In God's beginning? No, he pre-existed. Jesus pre-existed. He was already there in the beginning. That's what we're reading. He was in the beginning with God. When you, when you start really thinking about this, in the beginning was when God says, let there be light. Let there be the land and the earth and the heavens and the earth and then the things that he created. Let those things be, but he was there before the creation event. That means that Jesus was pre-existent. He always existed before his incarnation, before he was born through the Virgin Mary, who had never had a child, never known a man. Before then, Christ always existed. He always existed. It's our beginning, the beginning of the earth and all things that God has created. That beginning, in our beginning. And notice, in the beginning was the word. The word there is the Greek word logos. It is the very thought, the very expression of God. Jesus said to his disciples, and Jesus speaking to Philip, he said, Philip, um, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because that's what Philip asked him. Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices. It's good enough for us. Just show us the Father. Well, the Father is spirit. No man has seen God in, in, the, in his essence as spirit. But here, God in the flesh is standing before him. And what did Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the Logos. He's the very thought, the very representation of who God the Father is. He is the Logos, the Almighty God. He's equal with God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it says, There are three that bear record or bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit. They're, the Word and Jesus are synonymous. They're synonymous. And John was using that word specifically because it was very popular in his day, that word. And he wanted to put feet on it. He says, you know what? You guys are talking about this thought and, you know, and, and this representation, the expression. Let me tell you who it really is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. When you, and he is the Logos. That's where we get, I, I believe we get our word logo. When you think of a logo, you think of something that represents something. When you're traveling with your kids on I-90 and you're about halfway to Buffalo and your kids see the golden arches alongside the road and it's about lunchtime, you know what to expect. Those golden arches mean something to you. McDonald's, of course. It's a logo. It represents something. And every kid knows what the fries taste like. They know what the hamburgers taste like. They know what the Big Mac tastes like. They know what the chicken nuggets taste like. They know it all. And they already have in mind what they're going to get because they know what they're going to get because there's consistency, usually. The logo means something. Jesus is the Logos. He, he, he represents God. That's why he could say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is enough for you to see, Philip. And honestly, you couldn't handle to see God the Father in your body right now. You disintegrate into pieces. The brightness of his light. He dwells in unapproachable light. God the Father, you, you, we need a new body to be able to stand before him. 
That's why the rapture is so wonderful. We receive a new body that's going to be able to withstand eternity, to be in the presence of Jesus Christ and God the Father, and to see that radiance, which we probably will never see his uh, image because it's in his Son. But to stand in his presence in these bodies, <laughs> good luck. It's not going to happen. He's the Logos. And I love what it says in Revelation 19. We just finished it a few weeks ago. Remember when Jesus comes back, what's on his thigh? He was clothed with the robe when he comes back in his second coming to the earth physically with us following him from heaven. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called what? The word of God. The Logos of God. Who is this Logos? Who is this word? Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, it's consistent. It's Jesus Christ, the Logos of God. The Logos. And notice, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, notice, was with God. The Word, Jesus, was there with God the Father in the beginning. And notice, and the Word was God. Whoever this Word is, is equal. And you're probably tired of me saying it, but that's okay. You'll get over it. The Word was God. The Word was God. Verse 4 tells us, again, that it's a male. And verse 14 tells us that he's going to become flesh and dwelt among us. The Jesus, or excuse me, the Jehovah's Witnesses twist this verse very badly. In the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, their Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they say at this very spot, and the Word was a God. You have a problem with that? I have a problem with that. And so does every person who knows the Greek language. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know Greek I'm married to one, but I don't know Greek. She's a beautiful Greek, the most beautiful Greek in the world, by the way. She's going, oh, shucks. You should see her mother. She's about the same height. She's even smaller than she, you know, you know shorter than my wife. And she's like 100% Greek. I mean, she came from an island. I mean, she came from Carnegiesville. That's her maiden name. That's the name of the place. Carnegiesville. The, the animals lived on the first floor and the family lived on the second floor. True story. She came over on Ellis Island. We still don't know how old she is. I mean, she's, they, they, they estimated because they didn't have birth certificates for women when they came over from the Ellis Island. So they picked the date. And it happens to be my brother's birthday, too. But Greek. The Jehovah's Witnesses twist this very badly, and so does every Greek scholar. They have a real problem with this, a real problem. I'll never forget, and I'll get to that. I, I had a friend... Uh, back in Florida when I, I was in grade school, middle school, and we were really good friends. And um, his whole family was in the Jehovah's Witness, and they weren't practicing Jehovah's Witness. They were just Jehovah's Witness by name, but they, they didn't really practice it. And it wasn't until after I went to college, and then I went and I visited him, and I had gotten saved dramatically. And I go to my friend, and we start talking. And it just so happens that his family really got back into the Jehovah's Witness during the time that we were absent from one another for a couple years. And they really got serious about it again. And so by the time I get saved and I come back and I speak to him, we're having this battle. And he's trying to convert me and I'm trying to convert him. You know, I was a young Christian. I didn't know anything. I was still wet behind the ears. I was still very new in the faith. I didn't know anything 
All I knew was that I was forgiven and I'm going to heaven. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything. But one thing that the Lord did that I think was really interesting is one of the things that my friend did is he opened the Bible, opened up the world, New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, and he read this verse. And I had read this before in my Bible. And he says, and in their Bible says, and, and the word was a God. And, and the Lord says, he just opened my eyes to that. And I, and I looked to him, I said, I said, uh, I said to my friend, I said, what is that? The Lord instinctively brought that to my attention. Because either the word was God or the word was a God. He's just another God, like a pantheist, someone who believes that there's many gods, or is he God? Do you see the difference? And there's the problem. Those are crows on the, on the roof. Hear him pecking away at the ice? It's kind of nice, isn't it? Nice distraction from a message. It's probably the devil. No, I'm just kidding. Could it be Satan? Hmm? <laughs> Sorry. See, I still have room to mature. Still, still growing up, you know. I'm, there's still hope. But the Jehovah's Witness, they twist this so badly. In fact... The Greek scholar who they had, and we'll end here for today, the Greek scholar who they leaned heavily upon as they were translating their, you know, making their translation, they misquoted him, they misused him, and they totally misaligned the things that he said and his explanation about this very specific, very particular verse. And he was not very happy about it. In fact, I've got the letter that he wrote to the Watchtower organization and saying, there is no way that this can mean what it means. There's no room in the Greek grammar for A to be in front of God. It doesn't happen. It never happens. This should not be. And he rebuked them very sharply. And every other Greek person who knows the, this language very well says, this is just, this can't be. This is not even, it doesn't happen anywhere. There's no room for it. But yet they continue to keep it. Because as soon as they reveal that Jesus is God, they've got to change their, all their theology. And they will not change their theology. And therein lies the problem. Among other things, that's a big problem. Wouldn't you agree? He's either God or he's not. If he's not God, what does John tell us in his letters that we just read? That's of the spirit of the devil. The spirit of Antichrist is the one who inspired those words. And they're not even accurate either. It's bad grammar. Bad Greek grammar. So how important is it? This gospel. We're going we're gonna to have a lot of fun in this gospel. When I say fun, it's just it's so wonderful. It's so refreshing to me. When all the world around us is telling us a different story, trying to get us to believe a different narrative about who Jesus is, the colleges and the universities, the grade schools, they are all wanting, they've all kicked. I mean, again, I've said this before, and some teachers who in the church who are in schools, I understand, you are the light in that school. But by and large, the school itself as an entity has removed Christ from the schools. They don't teach creation, they teach evolution, which by, it's still a theory, isn't it? And it's a very poor theory to begin with. 
And yet, that is what they're teaching. Do you think this is important? It's very important. I would encourage you to think about those things, dear young people that are in grade school. Make sure you get these things into them. Make sure they know who Jesus really is. Folks, for those of you who have got kids in college, keep in touch with them because their professors are not telling them this. Their professors are humanists. They're humanistic. We live in a postmodern society where anything goes. If it works good for you, that's great. <laughs> well, it works good for you. You just got to believe it. The Bible is true. The word of God is true. Let every man be a liar. And that's what they're teaching. So this gospel is going to expose who Jesus really is. It's sort of, and one of the reasons why we, I chose this right after Revelation is because what was Revelation? Was it a concealing of who Jesus was and is? The very word revelation is apocalyptos, apocalypsis, which means an unveiling. It's not meant to conceal, it's meant to reveal. And this gospel, John is revealing who this is, who the word of God is. It's Jesus Christ. Aren't you happy about that? I don't know about you, but I find when we, when we are on this gospel, we are on very, very solid ground and the devil hates it. And he's going to encourage you not to listen to it. And your family is what needs to hear this. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances, they all need to hear this message. I would encourage you, as we start getting into this, not because I'm, I'm nothing, but whoever's teaching it the way, you know, the truth of it, send them the link. Go on our website and, and, and copy the link and send it to them. Say, check this out. Read, listen to this. Watch this. It's necessary can I even say it's essential? Amen. <laughs> Church is essential, and Jesus is essential. More essential than anything else that you can see with your eyes, he is essential. And what we're doing right now is so important. God says, don't forsake the assembling of one another as some do. Get together. What happens when we fellowship? I look at your faces, and there's a, rec a reciprocity that's happening. I'm watching your faces, and it's, it's doing something to me as I'm standing here telling you. And it's doing something for you as we read the Word of God, as we consider these things. It's changing us as we're, our hearts are being shaped and changed even while we're hearing this. That's how important it is. Let's stand together. Father, we, we thank you so much for the truth of this gospel. We thank you for the truth that Jesus is Almighty God come in human flesh. No one else can claim that. No one can claim that. And only Jesus can pay the price for my sin and for, my sin, for the sin of my brothers and sisters. And Lord, only Jesus can return for us and transform our bodies into a heavenly body and transform us and take us to be with you. And forever we will be with you, Lord. Only you could do that. No one else can do that, Lord. Charles Russell can't do that. Brigham Young can't do that. Mary Baker Eddy can't do that. David Koresh can't do that. Donald Trump cannot do that. Joseph Biden cannot do that. There's no one who can do that except for you. And so, Lord, we give our hearts to you. And we pray that, Father, 
you would just fill our lives with the truth of this truth, of this gospel. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful day.